memory test, okay? You guys remember the song that was written and recorded in 1977. And it was a song by the Bee Gees. And, and the chorus went, How great is your love? How great is your love? I really want to know. I mean to know. Is that how it goes? Let me look. I, said, I think I said the lyric one. How deep is your love? How deep is your love? I really mean to learn. Yes, thank you. I did you a favor by quoting it and not trying to sing it to you. <laughs> no, I wouldn't sing it. BGs couldn't sing that if I wanted to. How deep is your love? That can be our prayer today in the passage we're going to look at. We can ask God, Lord, how deep is your love? How deep is your love? We really mean to learn. The love of God might be the most misunderstood aspect of his divine nature. All we have to do is open our Bibles, Old Testament or New Testament, from the Garden of Eden to the book of Revelation. People have misunderstood the love of God. So our passage today is a parable from Jesus where he reveals the love of God to us in such a visually strong and personal way. He's going to tell us a tragic story, but it has a marvelous ending. Please pray with me before we we begin. Father, we come before you just just in love with you and, and, and so grateful you've provided this church home where we can come together with people we love, with the Lord we love, to open the word that we love, to discover your love more deeply than we've ever experienced it before. Lord, I believe that it's impossible to come to grips with how deeply you love us and not have it change our lives. And I pray that for each one here that our lives would be changed. We would walk out of here different, more empowered, more in love with you. We ask this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 12. I was not here last week. I was visiting my grandchildren in Idaho. So I had the privilege of listening to Pastor Mark's message from last week online. Wow. All I can say is, wow. I'm sitting there listening to it, and it was just making my heart beat faster. It was such an amazing message. And Pastor Mark said something that I I really loved. If you remember, he said that he had been going to seminary, and he wasn't sure why the Lord was calling him to seminary, seminary until... He got the call to come to this church. And for me, I think Mark coming to this church is one of the greatest blessings God has ever given our church. And he's such a, Mark is such an amazing man of God. And, and I don't know what I admire more. His, his preaching, his leadership, his friendship, or his love for us. It was a great message last week. And we're going to build right on top of that. Because even though we have a chapter break in our Bibles, there really isn't a chapter break. Jesus kept right on speaking to the people he was speaking in chapter 11. If you remember in chapter 11, it began with Jesus arriving as a king in Jerusalem. Then Jesus cleared the temple courts of corruption. And right after that, the religious leaders came upon Jesus and started questioning him about his authority. And Jesus dealt with them by asking them a question that they couldn't answer. So let's read chapter 12. This is a continuation right after that. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. 
Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Verse 6, he had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. The outline for this passage breaks down into these three sections. We, we read about the generous owner in the first two verses. And then Jesus spends a good amount of time telling us about the rebellious tenants. And then we finish with the marvelous outcome. Verse 1 starts with a statement that should really grab our attention. Do you see how it starts? Jesus began to speak. The Son of God wants to tell you and me something. The Lord himself, the Messiah, wants to talk. Remember when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain? Let's turn back for a moment to Mark chapter 9, 9-7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him, or hear him. God's voice from the cloud was loud and clear. This is Jesus, the beloved Son, and we must listen to Him. You know, sometimes we come to church and we think it's a good idea to listen to Jesus, and it is a good idea to listen to Jesus, but it's more than that. It's a command. To listen means to pay our utmost attention. When Jesus speaks, we should listen to every word he says. There should be nothing else on our mind. We should be listening and we should be heeding and we should be obeying when he speaks. I know that our lives are crammed full of distractions. There's so many voices, right, screaming in our ears all the time. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to that. It makes it really hard to clear away the clutter to listen to what the Lord has to say. But that's exactly what we're commanded to do. Let's obey God together right now. For the next half hour, let's give Jesus our undivided attention. Now, if a, if a, if a half an hour sounds like too much for you, then give him the next minute. And then the next minute after that, take it in one minute increments, okay? But for the next half hour, try to clear away everything else. Jesus is speaking. Please don't focus on me. 
focus on what, on what Jesus is going to say to you because he has something very specific to say to you today. What makes the Lord's words even more significant is here in chapter 12, the cross is just right around the corner. Jesus is on the way to the cross, but he stops to tell us this life or death story. Beginning in chapter 11 and going through chapter 12 of Mark, Jesus is going to have seven confrontations with these religious leaders. We read about the first one in Mark chapter 11. Let's look back. We looked at this last week. Mark 11, verse 27 to 28, to see how the confrontations began. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Okay, so far so good. They came to Jesus. That's fantastic of them. But then they opened their mouths, and look what they said. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? The religious leaders were only interested in maintaining their own authority. So they saw Jesus as a threat. They were not trying to better understand Jesus. It would have been wonderful if their question was sincere. Please, Jesus, tell us by what authority you have. That would have been fantastic for them. But that was <laughs> that's not what they had in mind. They just wanted to discredit the Lord and get rid of the Lord. That's all they cared about. Let's go back to our passage in Mark chapter 12, because Jesus here, this is the second confrontation, and he's going to change his approach a little bit. Instead of answering their questions, he's going to tell them a parable. A parable is a short story that draws upon events that were very common in Jesus' day. There are always short stories, simple stories, but they have very deep spiritual meanings. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen for you, because this is a story about a vineyard, and I want you to picture this beautiful vineyard Jesus is talking about. In ancient Jerusalem, it was very common for landowners to, to buy a vineyard like this, but not live on it themselves. They would rent it out to others, and the, the people that lived on the land would pay their rent in produce. The people that lived on the land were called husbandmen, or sharecroppers, or tenant farmers. Let's look at this, how the story begins in 12.1 and see if we can identify who, who everybody is in this story. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Okay, who's them? Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to those religious leaders that were confronting him in chapter 11. Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard. Who is the man? The man is God. What is the vineyard? The vineyard is Israel. So Jesus is going to tell them a story about how much God loves Israel. He put a wall around the vineyard. The wall around the vineyard speaks of God separating Israel from all other, all other nations on earth. Putting a wall around them, making them their nation for him alone. You know, we can see already that God's love for Israel, God's love for you and me, it's personal. Then he dug a wine press. Wine press is the means for getting the juice out of the grapes to make wine. Without a wine press, the grapes cannot fulfill their purpose. If you don't have a wine press, all you have is grapes. And if you wait a while, then all you have is raisins. That's it. You never got the fruit without a wine press. God gave Israel every opportunity 
to fulfill their purpose, to produce the fruit of righteousness, to be everything he created them to be. And he built a watchtower. The watchtower provides three key functions. A watchman can go up in the tower and have, a, have an unobstructed 360 degree view of the entire vineyard to protect it and to watch over it. Farmers can gather under the watchtower in the heat of the day for shade and comfort. And the tower stands like a beacon so everyone can tell exactly whose property that is, even from miles away. Jesus is saying that God protects, watches over, comforts, and identifies Israel as his own. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers. Who are the farmers? The farmers are the religious leaders. The ones that are supposed to care and love the vineyard, the people of Israel, not just love and care for themselves. And then the man moved to another place. This means the farmers are left responsible. They are there to serve the master. They are to care for his vineyard on his behalf. Now we've seen before in our study of Mark, every time Jesus is taught in parables, what happens? Somebody comes up to him and goes, okay, Lord, what did that mean? Explain it to us. Nobody asked Jesus to explain this parable. Why? Everyone listening to Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. Because they were all very familiar with the, something the prophet Isaiah wrote many, many years before. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. If you find Psalms, that's the big book in the, out in the middle of the Old Testament. Then go four books to the right and you'll find Isaiah. Now, of course, if you have a tablet or a phone, then you've already typed in Isaiah and you're way ahead of all your poor analog brothers and sisters that are actually turning pages made of paper. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Beautiful words. Listen to this. This is Isaiah's song of the vineyard or the vineyard of Yahweh. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This exquisite language from Isaiah tells us that God's vineyard had every imaginable advantage. It belonged to a loving person. It was planted on a fertile hillside. Best choice soil. The loving owner cultivated the land, 
He plowed it. He dug up all the stones. The owner got rid of anything that could possibly hinder the growth of his vines. This loving landowner prepared the vineyard not just to do okay, but to thrive, to flourish. He planted only the very best vines. He spared no expense. He delighted in the vines. He loved the vines. He protected the vineyard with a wall and a tower. He dug a wine press to process the precious fruit at the proper time. With all of these advantages, wouldn't you expect the vineyard to produce amazing grapes? The beloved vineyard only produced bad grapes, or wild grapes, your translation may say. Wild grapes are actually a fruit. That would be a very common fruit the people of Israel would understand. Wild grapes look exactly like good, healthy, tasty grapes, except wild grapes are bitter, they are foul-smelling, and they are poisonous. Bitter, foul-smelling, and poisonous is what our rebellion looks like to God. We need to pause here for a moment to examine our own fruit. Please don't examine the fruit of the person standing here sitting next to you. Examine your own. I'll examine mine. You examine your own. This is something I've been wrestling with while studying this passage. So let me just share it with you. It's a tough question. Does the flavor of the fruit that you are producing, that I am producing, does the flavor of the fruit match the advantage we have been given in Jesus Christ? Does the flavor of the fruit you and I produce match the advantages we have in Christ? Are you flourishing in the Lord's vineyard? Are we producing delicious fruit for Him? Or is, or is sometime our fruit a little sour, smelly, and toxic? Have you ever visited a vineyard? Something to see. The winemaker is out there inspecting the vines. The winemaker looks at everything because he knows that anything can hurt the harvest. So you and I should do that for ourselves. Do you, do I have anything in our lives that is hindering our fruitfulness for the Lord? What do you think people would think about this loving, caring landowner that poured everything he had into the vineyard, and it produced nothing but rotten grapes. He'd be a sad joke. What do people think when we go out of this place and we produce nothing but sour, bitter, toxic things for the Lord? Let's turn back to Mark 12, chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 12. With Isaiah's passage fresh now in our mind, just like it would be for Jesus' listeners, Let's read verse 1 again and then we'll move on. A man planted a vineyard. He dug a wall around it. Dug a, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. There is a lot of tension in this verse. Do you see it? Do you feel the tension in this verse? This man with his precious vineyard has made a contract, he has made a covenant with these farmers. He's given them the best of everything. The best he can possibly give them. And in return, he's just asking for some of the fruit of the vineyard. Then he moves away. 
He fulfilled his end of the bargain. But will the farmers fulfill theirs? Let's read on. Verses 2-5. to five. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Verse 2 begins with some very important words. At harvest time. Vineyards were the backbone of the Jewish economy. Everyone listening to Jesus knew that in the agricultural year, there was no more important time than harvest time. Harvest time either made you or broke you. So when harvest time came, the owner of the land sent a servant to collect just some of the produce. Now, according to Jewish law, the owner was legally allowed to request or demand 50% of the harvest. He could have taken half of everything and harvested. But the language here suggests that he didn't ask for half. He just asked for some. It was a smaller amount. The caring vineyard owner wanted to bless the farmers that worked the land. He wanted to make sure it was well worth their time. So he only asked for a little of what really belonged to him. God loves us so much. He never does anything but act in our best interests all the time. He always acts in our best interests. And God never demands anything from you and He never demands anything from me that we cannot give Him. Jesus is painting quite a contrast. Attentive farmers are selfish and unwilling to part with anything. That's how they are returning the love of his vineyard owner. But in contrast to them, the servants coming from this master are serving them with their very lives. Do we love and trust the Lord like these servants? Are we willing to do whatever our master asks us to do? These servants had to see the other servants coming back beat up or dead, but they kept going. Are we willing to get beat up in the world for his sake? Are we willing to die to ourselves to live for Christ? You know, the loving landowner is not only generous, he's also not hasty. He waited patiently until the harvest was in. He waited to collect the rent only when rent was easy for them to pay. How cruel if the master of the vineyard had sent for the produce before harvest time. That would have been unfair and unkind. He waited for this bountiful harvest to come in. Then he sent a servant to just take a little of the produce for himself. We see again that God never demands anything from us that he hasn't already given us. Do you see that? God never demands anything from you or from me that he hasn't already given us. If you feel the Lord calling you to serve him in some way, he will absolutely provide the money, provide the time, provide whatever resources are necessary. Trust him. The tenant farmers were given the best of everything, but the more they were given, just the more selfish and rebellious they became. So here's another tough question I need to ask you because I've been asking myself. Isn't it easy, too easy, to take the blessings of God 
and get possessive about them? Get selfish with the blessings of God? When God blesses us financially and we look at that paycheck or the bonus check or whatever, do we think this is our money? Or do we recognize that it's His? When God blesses us with health, do we think of it as, well, this is my life? Or do we realize it's His? It belongs to Him. When God gives us the privilege to serve Him in whatever way, do we get selfish and think of it as our ministry, this is my ministry, or is it His? The selfish farmers beat up the first servant. They sent him away, Jesus said, empty-handed. Think about that with me. They sent him away empty-handed. They could have given him at least a basket of fruit. Or here's a cluster of grapes for the road. They sent him away with nothing, not even a grape. They were unwilling to share anything with their loving, gracious Lord. So they paid their rent with their fists. Okay, what would you and I do if we had renters and they refused to pay their rent? What would you and I do if we had employees that we paid very well, gave them a great salary, and they refused to do any work at all? What would we do? The deadbeats would be gone, right? But the loving Lord of the vineyard, that's not what he did. He kept patiently and graciously reaching out to them. I mean, that's the kind of love that is really too foreign to us to fully understand. So he sends a second servant to collect. But the farmers treat this one worse than the first. So he sends a third servant. Not a servant with a sword. Not a servant with an eviction notice. But a servant with an open hand. And this one they murder. These servants represent the Old Testament prophets and messengers that God sent to Israel. Let's look at what one of those prophets wrote. The prophet Jeremiah. We'll put it on the screen. So You found Isaiah, so we'll just put Jeremiah and you can find him up on the screen. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He had a lot of experience with persecution. One time they threw Jeremiah down a deep well, like a shaft in the earth. And he sunk into the mud at the bottom and they left him there and starved to death. But the Lord rescued him. Look what he wrote. Jeremiah seven twenty one to 26 This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Okay, there's those words again. God is speaking. Let's give him our attention. Here's what God says. Go ahead. Add your bird offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourself. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward, not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. We see here God's contract, this covenant with Israel. Obey me, 
Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, everything I command you, and it will go well with you. In return for our loving obedience, do you see what God gives us back in return? He gives us the most precious thing in the universe. God gives us himself. How do we top that? God gives us himself. I will be your God. And you will be my people. When we disobey the Lord, our sin doesn't just stay in one place. It gets worse and worse. It's a downward spiral. Look at verse 26. They did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. Let's go back to Mark chapter 12. The tenant farmers in Jesus' parable started by beating up the first servant. And by the time the third servant came, their disobedience, their rebellion, their sin had escalated to murder. In verse 5, the vineyard owner continued to send many, not just a few more, many more servants to the tenants, but they were all beaten or killed. In Matthew 23, 37, I'll put that on the screen, we find one of the most painful pronouncements that ever left our Lord's lips. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Can we see the heart of God here? Even when we sin, the Lord longs to restore us to Himself. God's love, God's grace, God's mercy does not waver. This is what's so hard for us to understand about the love of God. Someone here today might think, you know, I've really done some terrible things. God will never forgive me. will never love me because of what I've done. But we see here that God absolutely will love and forgive and restore every repentant heart. Someone else might think, I can keep disobeying God and get away with it. But this parable from Jesus is showing us that that kind of thinking leads to disaster. The vineyard owner kept sending servants to save the farmers from themselves. But the farmers saw these merciful messengers only as enemies. Let's read on, verse 6-8. through eight. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The climax of the parable from Jesus comes here in verse 6. The vineyard owner had one left to send. The son. Whom he loved. So now Jesus puts himself in the story. He, of course, is the son, the beloved son sent by the father. Remember in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus was baptized? The voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here's a question that I imagine those that were listening to Jesus thought in their heads. And it is absolutely the question that came into my mind the first time I read this passage as a young boy. What father in his right mind 
would surrender his son to these terrible tenants. What kind of father? What kind of father would send his son to be treated like this? You know what kind of father? A father with unshakable love for the vineyard. A God with unshakable love for Israel. A God with unshakable love. Unshakable love for you and for me. The father is fully aware of what the tenants are going to do. And you know what else? He is fully capable of stopping them. Yet he is steadfast in his loving plan to save them and restore them if they are willing to receive the son. Even though he knows the farmers will not repent, he loves them more deeply and completely than we can ever understand. So he sends his beloved son to the farmers, to the religious leaders, to you and to me. So we have the opportunity, the last and final and greatest opportunity to be saved by his grace. God saw the depths of the religious leaders' sin. God sees the depths of your sin and my sin. There's nothing about us that God doesn't know. But with a love so deep and so why that our brains can't even begin to measure it. God sent His Son to die on the cross to save all who would receive Him. These tenant farmers, the religious leaders, did not want to be forgiven. They did not want the love of the Father and they certainly didn't want His Son. Except the Son meant they must serve the Father and the Son. They only wanted to serve themselves. Now, the people standing right there listening to Jesus would know their own law. And according to Jewish law, the son is the only person, except for the owner himself, who possesses legal claim over the vineyard. In Jewish law, the son represents the father. The son comes with the father's full authority. When you're dealing with the son, you are dealing with the father. In Jesus' parable, he's showing us that the son differs from those servants that went before him in three very important ways. The servants were many. There's only one son. The servants were workers. They were hired hands. The son is the heir. The servants were forerunners. The son, he is the last and final word of the father. Remember, the religious leaders that Jesus has been talking to have been challenging his authority and they're plotting to kill him. Jesus knows this. So in verse 7, he makes the strongest indictment against them. Verse 7, But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus makes it clear that the farmers didn't have a case of mistaken identity. They didn't mistake the son for just one of the other servants. No, they said, Hey, look, here comes the heir. Let's kill him. Then the vineyard will be ours. It's precisely because the farmers do recognize the son that they kill him so they can maintain their hold on the vineyard. Jesus is saying it's the religious leaders that do fully recognize he is their Messiah, but they want to kill him to maintain their hold over the people. So in verse 9, Jesus asks the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Now that he's done everything, what now will the 
owner of the vineyard do? I wonder if Jesus paused. I'll let that question just sink in. In my imagination, I see Jesus fixing his eyes on their eyes. Jesus didn't blink. With this question, Jesus is asking them to declare their own faith. Now that the farmers have killed the son, just like you are about to kill me, Jesus is saying, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will God do? Jesus is asking you and I the same question. If you or I reject the son, what will God do? The vineyard owner gave the tenants every possible chance to repent and be restored. God gave the religious leaders of Israel every chance to repent and be restored. God gives you and me every chance to repent and be restored. This is the unfathomable love of God in action. And I cannot tell you why he puts up with me. I can't explain why he puts up with this world. But his love is that deep that vast and unchanging. But the tenant farmers, these religious leaders, rejected every servant the Father sent. They even rejected the Son. They threw him out like garbage. So Jesus answers his own question in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the wicked tenants, the religious leaders, killed the Son, They killed their only hope at salvation. In A.D. 70, less than 30 years after Jesus said this, the Roman army came in and wiped out Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The rejection of the Messiah cost them everything. The wicked farmers, the religious leaders, did not keep the vineyard. They lost it all. If you or I reject Jesus... We too are rejecting our only hope for salvation and we too will lose it all. So with the wicked farmers gone, what happens to the vineyard? The loving, caring, gracious landowner gives that perfect, precious property to others. Who are the others that Jesus is talking to about? The others are the Gentiles, you and me. All people from all nations that love his son. Now the vineyard in Jesus' story becomes his church. Now giving the vineyard to the Gentiles was not God's knee-jerk or impulsive reaction. It was planned from the beginning. How do we know that? We won't turn there, but if you think back to Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8, Jesus purposely went to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them, to give them the good news of salvation. And when Jesus cleared the temple courts, we read this last week, He said, my father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he quoted Isaiah, who wrote that 700 years before Jesus was on the earth. Saving the world, saving Gentiles, saving you and me was God's plan from the beginning. God's beautiful vineyard became the fruitful ground for his church. Verse 10, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now Jesus is directly quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that predicts the coming of the Messiah. Psalm 118 is all about the most important stone in the history of the world and for all eternity. The cornerstone is Jesus. 
the builders that rejected the stone are those religious leaders once again. A cornerstone is an architectural term. It was common in Jesus' day for the builders to reject stone after stone until they, until they found that perfect stone that was straight in line to become the cornerstone to give the building symmetry and stability. There's only one cornerstone. Jesus is the only foundation and head of his church. And God has only one plan of salvation, and it's in his Son. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is saying that his rejection was foreseen by God and used for his glory. It was planned that way from the beginning. Later, the Apostle Paul would write this. I'll put Galatians 3.28 on the screen. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Remember that wall around the vineyard that separated that precious land for God? Well, the wall today is his loving hands around each one of us, separating us for himself. Remember the tower that was raised in the vineyard to protect it, watch over it, and identify it? That was our Lord Jesus who was raised up to watch over us, to identify us as his own, to claim us as his for all eternity. In verse 12, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Well, aren't, isn't that wonderful? The uh, chief priests realized that Jesus was teaching the parable against them. I guess mama didn't raise no dummies. They figured it out on their own. But they were too afraid of the people to do anything about it. And this is the third time since Jesus came into Jerusalem that they wanted to arrest him, but they were too afraid of the people to touch him yet. Here Jesus exposed to them their very own sin and disobedience. And Jesus revealed to them that he is their only hope for salvation. But the truth only aroused their hatred, not their repentance. Let me close with this. God's love for us is so incredible. We can barely understand it. it his love is just too big too vast, too deep, and too different from the way we love for us to fully understand or maybe even begin to understand His love. Here's some really good news. God does not command us to understand His love. He only commands us to respond to His love by giving Him our love and our faithful obedience in return. Love and faithful obedience is the fruit of our vineyard that the Lord requires. So what are we going to do today? We have a choice. Are we going to listen to what Jesus said? Or will we just walk away? I started the message by, by asking, Lord, how deep is your love? How deep is your love? And now that we've come to the end of this passage, I think a better question is, how deep is our love? How deep is our love for Him? I'm going to close in prayer. Our prayer team will be right over there for you after this final song of praise. Father, 
we cannot possibly begin to understand how and why you love us so deeply, but we are so grateful. Thank you is such a small word with such a big love. But Father, I pray that each one would leave here grateful for the love that we have from you and through you. And may our love be returned to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.